It is a joy to begin a new preaching series with you uh, this morning from the first letter written by Peter, 1 Peter in our New Testament, near the back of our New Testament. The series is entitled Refiner's Fire, Living in Victory While Facing Opposition. I'm convinced that to, to a lesser or greater degree, everyone in the sound of my voice is facing opposition of some sort. Everyone in the sound of my voice is suffering to some measure. And equally, everyone in the sound of my voice who knows Christ is being refined by the suffering that God permits our lives to experience. I want you to begin by thinking with me. You have an oven in your kitchen, and you set your oven to 350 degrees. When the chime sounds to tell you the oven is up to temperature, you have two things you're going to put into the oven. One is cake batter, and the other is newspaper drenched in glue. And you're going to heat and bake both of these things for half an hour, and you're going to take them both out of the oven. On the one hand, you are going to have a cake, and on the other hand, you're going to have a paper mache birdhouse. Suffering is like that. Suffering's the oven, and how we view suffering and our God will determine whether we come out as a lovely cake or we come out as a hard paper mache birdhouse. It's our choice. First Peter was written as a book to believers in Christ, predominantly Jewish believers in Christ, who were spread all across the known world due to Roman persecution. Peter was written to these suffering Christians who were all over the ancient world because they all were suffering. They may not have been suffering the same things, but they all were suffering without exception. And as I speak to you this morning, believers in Jesus Christ from Taiwan to uh, Bolivia and everywhere in between, we're all suffering to some degree, to some measure. And First Peter is applicable to us as 21st century believers who have to endure suffering and in some cases persecution. When the original readers of this letter, and now us by extension later, the readers that we are, something was needed. And what was needed was encouragement, direction, and hope. Encouragement, direction, and hope. And the first book that Peter wrote provides all three. Now, I should tell you that in my past pastoring and preaching, I took on the wonderful challenge of preaching what I called a Route 66 preaching series. And Route 66 meant I preached one sermon on each of the 66 books of the Bible. And by, ne by necessity, those Route 66 sermons were to the point, focused on the book's theme, and looked at one or two key passages of the book. This message this morning, as an introduction to 1 Peter, is my Route 66 message for 1 Peter. And so what we're going to do is we've raised the topic of enduring suffering because our refiner is working good for us within it, and we're going to look at two key passages of 1 Peter. That's what we're doing today, and then next week, God willing, we'll start at 1 Peter 1, verse 1, and work our way all the way through the book, verse by verse, as is our custom. But for now, we're looking at an overview of 1 Peter. 
And the book reminds the readers that we have been born again to a living hope. We've been born again to a living hope, and therefore, because we have our character and our conduct, need to reflect the Lord. Our character and our conduct need to reflect the Lord such that we are above reproach and we're imitators of Christ who suffered in the oven. Our proven character can bear fruit, good fruit, while we suffer the pain of being persecuted. This good fruit, according to 1 Peter, will include the following. Actions that are rooted in submission, law-abiding as citizens of a country, obedience as good employees, submission as godly wives, and love as godly husbands. The book is very practical. There are five chapters to 1 Peter, but I would propose there are three main sections that you could label in different ways to 1 Peter. I'm going to use alliteration for some triplets that talk about the three sections of 1 Peter. The first alliteration is one that starts with H. The book is about holiness, harmony, and humility. Holiness, harmony, and humility. You could say that a different way using a different alliteration with Bs. The book is about belief, behavior, and buffeting. Belief, behavior, and buffeting. Or a third triplet, a different way of saying this, beginning with the letter S, the book is about salvation, submission, and suffering. So the triplets are these, belief, behavior, buffeting, holiness, harmony, humility, salvation, submission, suffering. I'm calling these triplets. In my opinion, the evangelical church of the 21st century in the West, that's us included, that is not suffering intense persecution is very good on the first word of each of the triplets, namely holiness. We're all for it. Belief, we see the need for it. Salvation, we preach it and we witness it. We're very strong on the first word in each of the three triplets. But in my opinion, the 21st century church in the West that has not suffered persecution begins to fall down in the second word of each triplet. We begin to fall down with harmony. Often we don't get along. In some cases, I don't think it's this case of this assembly, often even with our own assemblies, we don't have our harmony. I believe we begin to fall down with behavior. Some believers in the West often think and act as though they're free agents. They're going to do whatever they feel like doing if they feel it lines up with Scripture, and it doesn't matter to them anything about what any other believer thinks, even a weaker believer. And I think we begin to fall down in the church in the West, 21st century, with submission. Often, believers just can't take orders from anybody. Well, if we were good on the first part of these triplets, and we started to fall down on the middle part of these triplets, I am convinced the third part of each of these triplets we know very, 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 very little about. 
And largely it's because we don't want to know about these things. What things? Humility. Often believers see that as a sign of weakness. Buffeting. We see that often as a sign of unconfessed sin in someone who's being buffeted. And suffering. All too often, we see suffering as a sign to look for pain relief as soon as possible. But biblically speaking, humility, buffeting, and suffering are fragrant flowers which are always produced by good roots of holiness, belief, and salvation, and those good roots support healthy stems and leaves of harmony, behavior, and submission. But don't miss this, please. If you are saved, your roots are to be holiness, right belief, and salvation in Christ. Your stem and leaves are to be part of your Christian life, which is above ground and noticeable by everyone, and that part of you should be growing, and you are to be in harmony with others and winsome and attractive in your behavior, and your submission to the authorities who God has put into your life should be clear and joyous. And finally, the flowers are the ultimate beauties of your Christian life, which are to bring most glory to your God and Savior and are to be beautiful responses in hardships and sufferings. Your humility should best be seen when you're buffeted. Your humility should best be seen when you suffer. I'll never forget an evening service in the second church I pastored in Canada. Not many people came to the evening service, and I was disappointed. But I'll never forget what happened in that evening service. Pastor George Chen, who was arrested in China and sent to the hard labor camp in communist China during the Cultural Revolution, visited our church. And because... Pastor George Chen was a university graduate. The Chinese communists gave him particularly hard labor jobs to do. And because he expressed a joy in Jesus, even in the camp, he was assigned to work in the human waste cesspool. His work there required that he waded into that cesspool The stench was almost overwhelming. But Pastor Chen told us that night that he got used to it and that he came to even thank God for that awful job in the human waste cesspool because there and only there, he was alone with God. There, No communist soldiers dared to come near the stench. And so Pastor Chen could quote scripture out loud, and he could pray audibly to God, and he could even sing praise to the Lord at the top of his lungs. He told us that night that his favorite song to sing from the cesspool was, I come to the garden alone. 
Pastor Chen was in that communist hard labor camp for 18 years. Flowers. Remarkably beautiful flowers of humility and praise right in the midst of human waste, buffeting and suffering. Roots supported stems and leaves which supported flowers, flowers that grew best and brightest in prolonged times of buffeting and suffering. So how does any Christian bloom when persecuted? How can we display beautiful humility when pain is inflicted on us for doing right? How could you sing to God when you are suffering? Well, 1 Peter teaches us how. The first point of this message comes out of 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12 is the first key passage in this sermon. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within was, was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they would not they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven the things into which the angels long to look if we are going to sing when we are suffering First and foremost, we are going to have to get to understand, to buy into something I'm calling the suffering followed by glory pattern. The suffering followed by glory pattern. If you are going to sing when you are suffering, you have to get the suffering followed by glory pattern. We're going to see in the next few seconds how predominant this pattern is in Scripture, how this pattern of suffering followed by glory is in the Old Testament and how it is in the New Testament. And if we're going to sing when we suffer, we're going to have to get this in our heads that there's a suffering followed by glory pattern. The sub-point under that is first in the verse Verses that the Old Testament prophets searched out this suffering followed by glory pattern. See that with me in verses 10, the first part of 11. As to this salvation, the prophets, that is the Old Testament prophets, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, the readers of 1 Peter, made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating that he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. This suffering followed by glory pattern was searched out by the Old Testament prophets, but there is more. Christ himself experienced this suffering followed by glory pattern. Look again at verse 11. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 
So it wasn't just the Old Testament prophets looked into the pattern, but Jesus Christ lived the pattern of suffering followed by glory. We go on. If you hold your places in 1 Peter and go with me to 1 Corinthians, the passage that beautifully, briefly defines the gospel, the gospel according to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, is this. It's this simple. Christ died for sins and arose. That's the gospel. The gospel has nothing to do with material prosperity. The gospel has nothing to do with social justice. Not that social justice is wrong, but the gospel has nothing to do with that. The gospel is that Christ died for sins and arose. Let's see that. 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel as I preached it to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what also I received. Now here's the gospel. That Christ died for sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised up on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared. That's the gospel. Christ died for sins and arose. Both his death was predicted by the Old Testament and his resurrection was predicted by the Old Testament. His death was proven by the fact they buried him. His resurrection was proven that he appeared alive after being dead. So the gospel is the very essence, the suffering followed by glory pattern. But there's more. D on your outlines. God implemented this suffering followed by glory pattern for our benefit, 12, 1 Peter 1. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you. The benefit of this suffering followed by glory pattern that the Old Testament prophets looked into and Jesus came to live out is that we who live on this side of the cross can understand it. So when we suffer, we get it. But there's more. Point E, the apostles, who were the eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ, preached this very same suffering followed by glory pattern. I see that at the end of verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in the things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. So the apostles preached this same message of the pattern of suffering followed by glory. Point F, the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven to facilitate this same suffering followed by glory message getting out by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And the last point in these verses is that the angels, you know that there were several angels created, all innocent and righteous, and when Satan became Lucifer, and asked some of those angels to rebel against the Creator. Some of them did, and they became demons, evil angels. There's no salvation for them. It's not possible for an angel, a fallen angel, to be redeemed. Only people are redeemed. It's not possible for a demon to be adopted into the family of God through repentance and faith. Only humans can put their faith and trust in Christ and be repentant and be adopted into God's family. So these angels look into redemption. 
they look into the fact, the pattern of suffering followed by glory, and they want to get in on it, and they can't. Their destiny has been settled when they sided with Lucifer way back in Genesis. This Greek word that says these demons long to look, it's a very strong word. The same Greek word is used in the Gospels, specifically Matthew 5, 28, where it's translated lustfully. These demons look in on your salvation and mine with a lust, a strong desire to get in on it, but they can't. And so, do you get it? (laughs) I need to get it. Do you get it? Do you get it that this suffering followed by glory pattern is very big? Do you get that it's the flow and the pathway of God's plan and work? That this suffering followed by glory pattern is how humility can bloom right in the middle of personal persecution and pain. That this pattern was what the Old Testament prophets searched into. And it's what the Lord Jesus Christ lived and died and resurrected within. And that this resurrection, this uh, suffering followed by glory pattern is the gospel. Do you get it? And do you get that this pattern has been implemented by God for our good? And that it was preached by the apostles? That it was so important to get out that God the Son sent God the Holy Spirit to earth to get out this message that suffering is followed by glory? Do you get it? If you do, you'll be able to respond to suffering properly. You'll come out of the oven as a cake and not as a paper mache birdhouse. So now we come to the statement that when the Holy Spirit calls us as believers to get with the program, it's largely every time a call to see this suffering followed by glory pattern. And so when we say, and I have said it, I'm not proud to admit, I have said it at times when I've been suffering, when we say, I'm above suffering, I'm not supposed to suffer, or I can't believe I'm suffering because I've been doing right, People who do wrong should only be the ones who suffer. I remember I've said that, but it's not right. But what's going to happen when, if you lose your job? Or if you go to the doctor and what the doctor tells you, you did not expect and you did not want? Or what's going to happen when you stand in the cemetery with that open grave and you're laying to rest the body of someone you dearly love who was not even sick? If you remember the suffering followed by glory pattern, you'll be able to bloom as a flower. And that's what we all want, I think. Which brings us to the second key passage in this message, which is chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. I will read them. Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing was happening to you, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. In this second main passage for this overview sermon in 1 Peter, we carry on our outline. The first two points from the previous passage were these. You can sing when you suffer when you get the suffering followed by glory pattern. The second point was you can sing when you suffer when you fully expect to suffer. And the, uh, sorry, that's the new second point. Mix myself up. The new second point is you can sing when you suffer when you fully expect to suffer. Let's look again at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. Beloved, painful trials and the resultant sufferings are par for the course in this sin-tainted, fallen world. Painful trials and their resultant sufferings are not unexpected, they're usual. They're not punishment, they're purposeful. They're not random, they're rounding you out to be more like Jesus. There should not be a cause of anger, but rather a cause of acceptance. They are not a tearing down, they are a building up. They are not to be a mirror, woe is me, but rather a window, great is God. Life on fallen planet Earth with its sin-tainted souls all around us will necessarily produce problems and pain from time to time for all of us. Nobody is exempt. In John 15, just prior to the cross, this is what his Savior told, the Savior told his followers. 15, 18 to 20, Jesus said to them and to us today, if the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they will also keep yours also. In John 16, 33, just a few verses down with that same time with the disciples, Jesus assured us, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I remember being in a seminar. I don't even remember what the topic of the seminar was. It was several years ago, but I remember this. We were in a group, small group setting, and there was a woman who was a mother, and she started weeping, and she said that she was weeping because her son was made to make out his last will and testament when he was enlisted in the Canadian Armed Forces. It was part of the process. As a soldier incoming 
soldier, he was required to make his last will and testament because the Canadian army knows full well that any soldier at any time can be killed discharging his or her line of duty. The mother and the boy and the father were to just expect that that was par for the course. Yet in the church, in the West, in our affluence, in the midst of actual spiritual warfare, the church in the West is asleep, largely, and expects not even to be inconvenienced, let alone that we would die as martyrs. And when any church has persons in it, believers in it, that don't believe they're in spiritual warfare and don't believe they ever would have to die for Jesus Christ, that when they suffer, there are many casualties, many complaining believers, many walkaway believers. Oh, I don't want to be any part of a church. I was so disappointed and hurt there. Really? When believers don't understand they're in spiritual warfare and we could at any time be called to lay down our lives for the Lord Jesus, we pledge allegiance to him early in that beautiful song. When people don't understand that or accept that or live that, then you get bitter when you have to suffer. Why me? I tithe. But in verse 12, 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though something strange were happening to you. The word strange here means foreign. This is saying that painful trials this side of heaven are not visitors to us. They are next-door neighbors. This is saying that painful trials and their resultant sufferings before we see Jesus through rapture or death are not tourists to earth. They are citizens of the earth. These pains and trials and sufferings belong here. They live here. And similarly, born-again Christians are not citizens of the earth, but we are citizens of heaven. We are just tourists while we live on earth. And as Christians are not foreigners to heaven, sufferings are not foreigners to earth. And so, please don't be surprised at your sufferings. Rather, please fully expect them and then sing through them. Now, some of you may be wondering at this point, if you can sing when you suffer, when you get the suffering followed by glory pattern, and you can do that, you can sing when you suffer, when you fully expect to suffer, then are we just supposed to be pessimistic fatalists? I was talking to a believer recently, and he said a good thing. He said, I'm not a pessimist. I'm not an optimist. I'm a realist. And the realism here is that trials and sufferings are inevitable. The oven's on. Cake batter, newspaper with glue on it. And so the third point in this sermon this morning is based on verse 13. You can sing when you suffer, when you focus 
on Jesus. Verse 13, 1 Peter 4. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. We have to never lose track of the fact that the Lord Jesus suffered tremendously. And we need to focus on his suffering and then glory granted to him. And so key words here in the verse like rejoice and overjoyed teach us that the Christian life is so much more than gritty, gutting it out, and dreary drudgery and neurotic negativity. The Christian life is processing suffering and believing that there's a suffering followed by glory pattern. The verb translated rejoice here is a present tense imperative. That means it's a command, but more than that, it means it's a continual command. It means that we are to rejoice and be overjoyed in suffering in a continual way. Will we suffer? Yes. Can we still continually rejoice? Yes. And we are commanded to continually do so. There's one more verse in our overview of 1 Peter this morning, and we are told in this verse why we can choose to see our suffering and pain as the things that we can rejoice over. So why could you and should you choose to see your sufferings and pain as things over which to rejoice? It says that you may participate in the sufferings of Christ, that you may participate in the sufferings of Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, we can decide to understand that we share a part in our Savior's suffering when we suffer for doing the right thing. Several verses speak to this. In Matthew 5, 10 through 12 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or Galatians 6, verse 17, which says, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The one that God used to write 60, 60% of the New Testament, Paul, bore on his body scars, lots of them. Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and follow fellowship of his sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Or, you see the theme is, is, is very much in the New Testament. Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in what was suffering for you and fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. And so John MacArthur writes a helpful comment here. In spite of his death on the cross, Christ's enemies had not gotten their fill of inflicting injury upon him. So they turned their hatred on those who preached the gospel 
It was in that sense that Paul filled up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions, end of quote. This perspective can cause us to rejoice even when we suffer for doing what's right. But there's more in this verse. If we have to suffer for doing right and if we have to rejoice in our sufferings, seeing them as fellowshipping with Jesus' sufferings, then we will be overjoyed when at the second coming return of the Lord, verse 13. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, that's the second coming, you may rejoice with exultation. Do you know who's going to rejoice the most at the second coming of Jesus? His followers who suffered for his sake the most. When I was under the roof of my parents and they didn't assign me a whole lot of chores, I had chores, one of my chores was to mow our grass. And my buddies wanted to play football. So I remember the day when I blew off mowing the grass and play football, hoping I would get back from football before my parents got back from wherever they were. That was a bad feeling. How different than the times when they say, mow the lawn, son, and I did what I was told in a timely way. I did my best job, and when they came home, they could see the lawn was done, but not just done, it was done well. What a difference between those two returns. In Matthew 20, and we're getting near to the end here. In Matthew 20, verses 20 to 23, we read the following. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him, Jesus, with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and one on your left. But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. This mother, this ambitious mother, asked for the great glory for her two sons, and the Lord linked that great glory with great suffering. And he asked, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Jesus said to the mother and the sons, you want a place of honor in heaven? Are you prepared to suffer? When we focus on Christ's sufferings and glory, then we can sing when we suffer. We can continuously rejoice and we can anticipate being overjoyed with great reward in glory for suffering much for Jesus. And so there's purpose in our pain. There's a pattern of suffering followed by glory. So as we close this sermon, let's move it off of doctrine, as important as doctrine is, theology, as important theology is. Let's bring it down to where we all live, Monday to Saturday. 
with what do you suffer today? For some of you I know, and for others of you I do not know, but God knows. With what do you suffer with today? How will you see that circumstance, whether it's your health or your marriage or your children or your loneliness or the crime around your house or whatever it is, how will you deal with your suffering? How will you see it? Will you bless others by rejoicing in your suffering? You know, we had the unique pleasure and privilege of getting close to Simone from the Lagos ship who was shark attacked and her friend that was left with her from the ship, Ning. And they told us some of what happened that day. And one of the things they told us that when they got Simone into the boat and her flesh was hanging off of her and bleeding, they sang hymns all the way into the dock. At one point, bless her, Simone was real honest with Ning, and she reported it to me and Beth. She said, you know, I told her that I, th- I feel a spirit, a spirit of fear coming over me. And Ning quoted the scripture that he has not given us a spirit of fear. And they went back to singing and reciting scripture. Suffering? Yeah. How do you see it? Can you rejoice in it? Can you bless others by being able to be overjoyed with your future reward? Did you see the letter she wrote to the newspaper? It starts out something like this. I'm not writing as a tourist, but as a friend. And -and so-and-so the fisherman was our friend, and we asked him to take us out. And when I got attacked, he told me exactly what to do. And he fended off the shark if the shark were to come back with his own spear gun, and he can't use one of his arms and legs. She put that in the paper. You know why she did that? Because rumor was having it that he was not a good guy. She didn't want that. And they had him come to her bedside without any visitors being present for one hour so she could minister to him. I don't blame you. I have a sovereign God. God's bringing good out of this. I'm going to have my foot spared if it's God's will. That's what I'm talking about. Singing in the cesspool, singing in the boat with part of your leg falling off, And so it comes down to cake batter or newspaper and glue, your choice. It's going to be an oven. That's no choice. What are you going to go into the oven as, cake batter or newspaper with glue? If you go in as cake batter, something good will come out of the oven. If you go in as newspaper and glue, something hard and brittle will come out of the oven. It's your choice. Now, people without Jesus Christ are spiritually dead. They do not have the Holy Spirit within them. They only have a body and a soul that's called flesh, and flesh is like glue. You heat it up, and all you get is a hard result. People like us who know Christ as Savior, who are spiritually alive, who have the Holy Spirit living within us, we have the ability to overcome our flesh and to present ourselves to the situations and ovens of our experience as cake batter. 
And as we let the Holy Spirit work in us, before, during, and after sufferings, he is the yeast that is needed to bake a cake. And a soft result is the result. I want to be a whole lot more like cake batter than newspaper and glue, and I believe you do as well. Refiner's fire, living in victory while facing opposition. Lord, make us to be cake batter. For some of us, the oven is very hot right now. See us through. Refine us. For some of us, we went in as newspaper and glue, and we see the error of it. Switch us over. Maybe we want to be switched over to cake batter. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for Jesus' glory. Amen.